0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, voting rights and the midterms. So Richard, this is our final broadcast. It will be going live before the midterm elections and so a topic that's on a lot of people's minds is – voting rights. You've had the Supreme Court garner some notoriety on this topic recently when they allowed Texas to go forward in this cycle with a new voting law there that requires photo ID. It's been controversial in some circles. Uh, What do you make of the court's decision there?
1: Well, I think what happens is they are very reluctant to Interrupt political processes as they now move when their own decisions, at least until recently, have been generally supportive of the ability to require these ID cards. If they give a temporary injunction under these circumstances at a time when it's not clear that they're going to strike it down, then in effect, the, the Democrats who are pushing this will get a victory which might result in an ultimate loss. So given the shortness of time, the appropriate thing to do is to just stop this thing from happening and let things go forward unless you're really confident that you're going to reverse your old precedent. Um, The second thing, of course, is from the Democratic point of view, to some extent, this is a godsend. Um, The New York Times had a piece in the paper yesterday. They called it a news story, but it was essentially an exhortation. And the point of this exhortation was to say that the only hope that the Democrats have to retain the Senate is to have an extremely high black turnout, which is difficult to obtain when you don't have a presidential election and it's almost impossible to obtain in a midterm where there's no salient issue in a president without real popularity. So he's not on the ballot and there's a lot of uneasiness on the other side. You get all those tensions there. This is an effort to rally the troops because what you can now say is what you have to do is to make sure that iniquitous laws like this are not going to stop the will of the people from being heard and the Democrats benefit from this because it now becomes a focal point for their campaign. And they can try, as they always do, to cast the Republicans in the position of meanies who are trying to stop the vox populi, the voice and the will of the people, uh, from being fully heard. So I think in the end, uh, the Democrats are the modest gainers from all of this, unless there's a backlash of the sort by Republican voters who are so tired of hearing all these issues that they say, if the Democrats are this impossible, we really have to return the Republicans into control of the Senate. Uh, But I think in the end, the trends are going to be determined by the larger issues out there and not by this particular um, dispute.
0: To that point, let me read to you something that President Obama recently told Jeffrey Tubin, This was in a profile for The New Yorker on the president's judicial legacy. This is his reaction to the Shelby County decision from the Supreme Court last year, that struck down part of the voting rights act. Quo- quoting the president here, quote, the fact that the Supreme Court didn't seem to internalize evidence where state election officials or politicians are pretty unabashed." in saying we want to keep certain folks from voting, where you have voter ID laws that clearly make it harder for certain folks to vote despite the fact that there is no actual evidence of fraud, not just a little evidence of fraud but no evidence as every mathematical assessment, statistical assessment that's been done shows. It's a pretext for wanting to shape the franchise for partisan advantage. The fact that that doesn't seem to have gone into the court's reasoning, I think, makes it an ultimately flawed decision, end quote. What's your response to that?
1: Um, I think he's very weak on the analysis. You, what you have to do is to ask yourself what was at stake and what was at stake at this particular point was the question as to whether or not in certain states but not in all states you can have various kinds of pre-clearance hearings in which everything that you want to do with respect to an election is something on um, which has to be um, approved by either a 3 Dodge district court or some kind of panel. Uh, the one thing he talks about are the, sort of the voter fraud laws and he makes it appear as though those are all already unconstitutional. But it's an extremely odd position to say that once the Supreme Court has actually sanctioned them, as they have in some previous cases, uh, that the fact that other states now require them is evidence of an unabashed effort in order to keep people out of the polls. He doesn't give anything about the numbers, and I think that's very instructive. Uh, the numbers suggest that um, 98% of the people, roughly speaking, of, who are minority or non-minority members all have the requisite kinds of ID. So you're talking about a very tiny form of, of the popular, It's also the case that if you really thought there was a systematic violation with respect to this, you could go under the ordinary rules bearing the burden of proof, which essentially is a case that you're going to, I think, lose. And the other thing that the president doesn't talk about is the size of the particular burden in question and its commonality. As I understand most of these statutes, they can be roughly summarized. You have to show the same kind of ID in order to be able to vote that you have to be able to show in order to get on an airplane. It's not as though we're going back to the old days of the grandfather clauses where we have these elaborate literacy tests of one form or another, or where we're requiring people to bring in their birth certificates and three witnesses to indicate where they are. There's no evidence that the requirements in this particular case are being enforced differentially with respect to the two races. There was very clear evidence that Justice Chief Justice Robinson produced when he wrote the Shelby County position showing the differences in the level of voting between the races so that now, in fact, the minority turnout is in many Cases is stronger than is the white turnout in part because the obama machine is so incredibly good at identifying and bringing its particular voters to the poll and so what i think he's really trying to do is to make it look as though nothing has changed in the world since the 50 years have gone by because what you're trying to enforce is essentially a provision of the statute which was triggered to and tied to 1964 behaviors it was only those states which had real differentials which are the southern states plus for some reason alaska that were caught by it and as the case becomes weaker for its enforcement uh, the period at which you're prepared to enforce it gets ever longer and that's just completely backwards as far as I can see so what the president did not do is in fact to realize that there were two sides in this particular case and indeed in my view Section Five is completely inappropriate in order to deal with the evil at hand today, and if that 's the particular case, then it should be struck down just to give you one kind of case. Um, what Ruth Ginsburg said in what was I thought a very weak dissent is that you know uh, just because the patient has recovered, it doesn 't mean that you stop the chemotherapy well, of course, you do stop the chemotherapy when the patient is recovered because it may well kill the overall process and so what happens is you have to show something that 's proportionate to the wrongs as they exist now, and there is simply nothing about this system given the distribution of control with a large amount of minority presence in key positions which makes the system look remotely like it was in 1964 and it's the question of fraud well it depends on how hard you actually look to see what's going on there are all sorts of stories you hear about this and you're not going to be able to get this I think simply looking by formal data what you would have to do if you're serious about it is to run an open panel and have people who claim that their evidence of fraud in their own particular communities and so forth are allowed to go go forward and to show those particular claim. But if you're not sure which way it goes, a simple prophylactic like this cannot be regarded, I think, as a menacing condition. So as ever, the president source of pertains the pretend constitutional law professor. Uh, but in fact, I think he and Tubman are much more biased on this issue than they ought to be.
0: How should we think about the balance between ballot access and, and ballot integrity? I'll, g- I'll give you an example. One of the criticisms that comes up sometimes is early voting, and the argument on one side is, look, you don't need to make this unduly burdensome for people. If we can work it out so that they just drop their ballot in the mail, what's the problem? The other side of that argument is, wait, if, if you cast a ballot a few weeks early, then you are in some senses voting in a different election. You're you're working from a different body of information. There may be things we don't know about the candidates. Uh, the revelations about George W. Bush's DUI for instance came out very, very late in the 2000 campaign. So h- how do you think about those kinds of arguments?
1: Well, I'm very unhappy about the early voting type situation. I think what you really want to do is to have a snapshot of the population on the day that this thing starts to take place, uh, to take into account, as you said, all the changes in information and sentiment that happen. Um, for example, to give you an analogy, start looking at union elections and there's a the question as to whether or not you can give your voting card, for example, to a union to authorize it to cast a ballot on your behalf. The rule is you can give them the card at any time, uh, but the ballot itself is not cast until the day of the election. And in the interim, you have the right to revoke and to put something else in there. And so, you know, if you want to do something early, maybe what you ought to do is to put it in a lockbox, but not count it, and then give people the right to take it out if it turns out it's otherwise. Uh, the other problem about it is generally speaking, uh, the incidences of fraud are not going to be independent of the way in which you run the system. The basic max is, the more points of entry that you have into a system that's by time or by location or form of voting, uh, the more likely it is that somebody can start to game the system. So even if you found out that there's no kind of fraud whatsoever, which I doubt, with respect to elections that are conducted at polling places on a single day, it doesn't follow that there's going to be no fraud when you start to do this on the other side. So you really have to run excuse me, something a little bit more thorough before you can make a final judgment on the way in which this thing goes. So generally speaking, I do not think that the requirements that they're talking about are particularly onerous. I think there's some dangers of this particular early system of voting. I would rather stick with the older rule and then let the parties battle out to see the intensity of participation that they can generate. And thus far, you know, the Democrats have done extremely well under the older rules because they, until this election, have been better organized, better manned, better thought out, younger and more vigorous in their enforcement efforts than the Republicans have. And indeed, if the Republicans want to win in 2016, they better start looking on these dimensions at least a lot more like the Democrats.
0: So final question, Richard, as people consider going to the polls at this election, we know midterms tend to have lower turnout than presidential Mm -hmm. elections. Um, Regardless of the cycle, though, there are always people who fret about the levels of voter participation or the lack thereof. There seems to be two competing camps. Uh, One that regards it as a crisis when turnout falls below a certain level, and another that says, well, you know, if there's an election and people don't turn out to vote, that has to, at some level, signal a basic level of comfort with the status quo. That's nothing to get alarmed about. Uh, Where do you fall on that question?
1: I'm probably closer to the second camp than to the first camp. I mean, there are a lot of people who do the sort of rational choice calculation and say, what's the probability that my vote will affect the outcome of the election? They decide that it's virtually negligible and therefore they decide to stay home because they don't want to buck the lines that take place at the polling cases. Generally speaking, if you do have a sharply divisive election, you will see higher turnouts, which is consistent with your thesis. Now people believe there's something that's matters, so they really care. I think the problem that the Democrats see with this, unlike the Republicans, is that their numbers are more likely to shrink in an off year election than the Republicans are. Um A because the minority vote is not going to be as likely to come out when you don't have a presidential campaign with a democrat at the head of the ticket and more so because you don't have obama at the head of the ticket Um, on the republican side i i think that there is now some real urgency to try to retake the control of the senate just as there is on the democratic side to get it but the republicans are much better positioned on this thing because in 2014 you're doing a rerun of the 2008 election where there are going to be many vulnerable democrats in red states who are fighting for the Lives and knowing that bringing Obama out there is going to be basically the kiss of death with respect to all the median voters. So I think a lot of the problems that the Democrats have is they have a presidential nominee whom a presidential assist, which they really don't want to take because of the deep uh, lack of popularity. The other thing I think that's hurting the Democrats in this case is that the sort of staggering economy in which every day you get some good news and the next day you get some bad news and after a while it looks as though you haven't done much of anything in either direction hurts the Democrats. But there's also, I think, the real calamity with respect to foreign affairs in which nobody has confidence that the president will make the right decision or make it cleanly. There seem to be fiasco after fiasco. and I I think that that kind of disillusion with the president is going to increase the case that the Republicans have that they should strengthen the control in the House and take over the Senate. So I, you know, I'm know i no pollster but I do keep my finger to the wind and I would guess at this point uh, I kind of agree with the dominant sentiment that it's probably two to one odds in favor of the Republicans taking things over probably by about 52 seats. But what do I know?
0: Thank you, Richard, and uh, thanks as well to our listeners who, remember, can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For The Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of The Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.